Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm blue. My disposition depends on you. I never mind the rain from the skies if I can find the sun in your eyes. All right, this show has been so much fun to prepare for. Uh, and uh, I worked with Lily Tyson. I get to pick out some of the music for this show. And so that's the song that you just heard is mentioned in, in this novel we're about to talk about. This novel is saturated in so many wonderful things, including music. And, and I, I'm going to say that I wanted to play this particular version of this particular song, which is the favorite song of a character in the book, because of the verse at the beginning, which a lot of people don't sing. The verse is that kind of slow part uh, in, at the beginning of a jazz standard. But it describes a lot of things that are not exactly in the main part of the song, but are in the book. What book am I talking about? Why won't I shut up? Those are all very good questions. Well, we are here to talk uh, about the book of Form and Emptiness. It is written by Ruth Ozeki. Uh, her previous books include My Year of Meat and A Tale for the Time Being, a finalist for the Booker Prize. Born in New Haven, living in Northampton now. So we're basically you know, at a midpoint between two phases of her life because we're sitting here in Hartford right now. Uh, and uh, she's joining us right now. Very excited about this book. Uh, very excited to talk about a lot of the themes in it. Ruth Ozeki, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm sitting here just cracking up. <laughs> that was. I was so happy to hear that song. That's such an amazing rendition of it, too. Thank you for finding that. Yeah, it, it heard, <laughs> the name of the singer is Amy Yassinger, which kind of rhymes with jazz singer. It's how That's you remember. excellent. Uh, and uh, yeah, I wanted that verse there, too, because I think it describes very specifically the longing at the beginning of this book as uh, the, the mother of the protagonist, Benji, loses her beloved uh, husband and, and partner and everything, Kenji. And that's his favorite song. He's a musician. But uh, so much of the beginning of the book is about that very specific kind of longing experienced by Annabelle, not Kenji. So, um, but there's so much to talk about. And we'll get to know you and some stuff about your life uh, as we go along here. But I want to begin with one of the basic ideas of this book, which is mm. th this notion of animation, of the mm. idea that the unsentient thing, that the so-called inanimate things in our lives, uh, in, are in fact, um, at least within the reality of this book, uh, there are they speak, they have agency, they have agendas. Uh, maybe say a little bit more about that vision uh, uh, and the way it informs the plot of this book. Sure. Oh, what a wonderful place to start. Thank you for thinking of that. Um, because animation was really something that was, um, you know, sort of going through my mind a lot, um, you know, as a former filmmaker, first of all, you know, I, I, um, I sort of think in filmic terms. Um, but I was thinking, of, too, about the way that um, children's animation, you know, in children's animation, 
you know, objects, you know, insentient things um, are full of life. You know, they're vibrant, they're vital, they dance around, they speak, they have opinions, they have agency, they have all of those things, right? And then somewhere along the line, we lose our ability to sense that, to imagine that, and things become inanimate and kind of dead. And the world is a much livelier place if, you know, when it, when, when the objects, the things around you, um, when you can invest them with that kind of vibrancy. So that was something that I was certainly thinking about as I was, um, I was writing this, um, you know, and I think the, um, to some extent, um, I was thinking about things like, you know, having to clear out my parents' house in New Haven after they died and about the objects there, every single one of which had some kind of story attached to it. And, and you know, even if I didn't know the story, I could sense it. And I found myself just wishing over and over again that, you know, that these objects could speak so that I could know more about where they came from and the stories that they, you know, that they held inside. So that was certainly part of what was inspiring me to write Annabelle, um, who has, as you say, lost um, her beloved, you know, and um, can't bring herself to throw away his flannel shirts because they still have his aura, his essence, sort of clinging to the to the weave. Or of course, it turns out she can't be able to throw out anything, but that's that's a, that's a separate too. story. So, um, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so this idea of kind of hearing voices of being constantly spoken to by the so-called inanimate world is mm -hmm. the dilemma, is the plight in which Benji, your protagonist, finds himself in. He can't walk anywhere essentially without all these things talking to them, mm -hmm. and they're really talking to him too. They they have information that seems quite valid. But I love the point that you made about that idea: is that as children, we are confronted with a culture that does grant that kind of animation and agency to this cat. We're going to go to A2 right now. What's up there? Where? There? Oh, nothing. Absolutely nothing of interest at all in the West Wing. Dusty, dull, very boring. Ah, so that's the West Wing. Oh. Nice going. I wonder what he's hiding up there. <laughs> hiding? The master is hiding nothing. Then it wouldn't be forbidden. Perhaps uh, uh, Mademoiselle would uh, like to uh, uh, see something else. We have exquisite tapestries dating all the way back to... Maybe later. Uh, the, the gardens or, or the, the, the library, perhaps. You have a library? Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, indeed. With books. Cans of books. Mountains of books. <laughs> Forests of books. Cascades. Lovers. Swamps of books. More books than you'll ever be able to read in a lifetime. Books on every Okay, that of course is from Beauty and the Beast, the animated version, uh, the people talking in addition to Belle similar name to Annabelle, uh, mm -hmm. are a clock and a, a, a candelabra. Uh, and so um, there's a lot in that clip that's in this book, too, and uh, including the stuff about books at the end. And we'll, we'll come to that in a second. But, you know, there's a way in which Benji, uh, Ruth, is, you know, obviously he's kind of stigmatized. He's defined because it's OK to talk to your car or your toaster, but it's not OK if your car or your toaster talks back. So he's identified as schizo having a schizoaffective disorder. He's mm -hmm. hospitalized. But, you know, in I don't know. As I was reading it, first of all, I thought think, started thinking about Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, but I, then I started thinking mm -hmm. about this too. I mean, the truth is, as kids and really as we grow up, it isn't. I mean, it, it's not true that we don't talk to the things around us, right? 
That's, I mean, I think that's really true. I am constantly having conversations with the things around me. Um, and I and I really do, you know, sometimes think that they talk back, you know, but I was also interested in this idea, you know, as a, as a writer, as a, um, you know, a novelist, you know, things are talking to me all the time. You know, I mean, I, I very often, I, you know, when I when I talk to people about writing novels, um, I'll, I'll say things, I'll hear myself saying things like, well, you know, characters come to me as voices, right? And, and so I started thinking about that, like, what does that, what does that mean? And I remember I was describing it like this at a library event, actually, in, in Michigan, I think it was. And one of the audience members raised his hand, uh, he was a, um, a middle-aged man, and he said, you know, when you talk about characters hearing voices, are you talking about hearing them, you know, sort of with your mind as though it's inside your head? Or are you actually hearing them with your ear as if it's outside your head? Right. And I knew immediately what he the mm -hmm. distinction that he was making, because I have also heard voices um, outside my head, you know, as if with my ear. Um, and, and that was after my dad died. And for about a year after that, um, I would occasionally hear him. You know, I'd be doing something like washing the dishes or, or you know, ironing or whatever. And um, I would hear him clear his throat and say my name. Mm -hmm. And it felt exactly as if he was standing sort of in the room, but, you know, uh, behind me on my right-hand side. It was always the same place, right? And, and I'd whip around and, and look, right, and, and expect to see him there. And then suddenly I would remember, no, of course, I, he's gone, you know, he's dead. And would feel, you know, all of that sense of that grief and loss all over again. These things happen so quickly, though. You know, they happen so quickly and they disappeared so quickly. I just kind of would shake my head and, and, and you know, forget about it, move on. But I have had that experience, you know, of, of um, hearing a voice as though it's outside my head. And, and so, you know, it it's, seems to me that there's kind of a, a spectrum here of voice hearing, you know, the, the kind that come from the outside, the kind that, you know, come from the inside. I mean, then, of course, they're the, you know, as a writer, there's that whole army of voices that are inside the critical voices that are telling me like all the time that, you know, my writing sucks and I should probably just give up and go out and get a job. You know, they're, they're those voices, too. So um, it seems to me that this is there's a vast array of voices, you know, that we can talk about here. Right. And I think we're going to swing back. I think sort of Benji has sort of two, quote unquote, problems, uh, you know, and one of them is hearing voices. And I, I want to sort of segregate that and talk a little bit more specifically mm -hmm. about that later. The other problem that he have, has that is and is, of course, conjoined to the first problem is that idea of inanimate things being alive uh, and 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 making demands and wanting to be heard. Uh, and um, at one point early on, he gets in trouble because a window uh, is talking to him uh, because a, a sparrow has just flown into the window. It's in his classroom at school. So it's, it's a little bit awkward because he has to deal with this window. Nobody else can hear the window saying anything. But the window has very specific issues. And he wants to talk about how it used to be sand. We did a whole show about glass last week, so that really spoke to me. But I, oh, and the other thing that I remembered is, and I, I don't know, somebody must have mentioned this podcast to you by now, now that the book mm -hmm. is out. Is, do you know about the podcast, Everything is Alive? Yes. All right. Yes. So we, yes. Wanted, we wanted to play for the listeners. This is actually, there's actually an episode of Everything is Alive where a pane of glass does, in fact, uh, talk a little bit about what's going on, even in a specific uh, situation pretty close to what Benji experiences. So, yeah, let's do A1 here. So, Chioki, tell me about the time the 
bird flew into you? Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you about the first time the bird flew into me. So um, in the sky one day, there were some birds kind of circling, doing their bird existence. And one bird seems to have a kind of close angle of approach. I thought, hey, if he keeps flying like this, he's not going to make that branch. But then he overshot the branch and was still headed toward me. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, well, this isn't going to be good at all. And he hit me so hard. I mean, like feathers flying everywhere. And then they, you know, how birds are. He did that thing where he, he fell like for, for a bit and then caught the wind and then kind of flew off crookedly. Did it hurt you? It was a feeling of impact. It was an unexpected feeling of impact. I don't know that I feel pain, but I guess that I feel enough empathy that the bird's pain was also my pain. Yeah. I mean, he was he was more surprised than I was. I obviously saw him coming the whole time, and he for sure did not see me. How does that feel, like that, that you could be mistaken for nothing? I mean, I guess that it's a feeling of I know something you don't know, and you're about to find out in three, two, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so... You know, That's Ruth. Great. Yeah, that is great. So, that is great. And but I think also uh, we've sort of said this already, but I want to say it a little bit more specifically. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We think it's okay to have conversations with in- inanimate objects when we want to curse them out. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. a screwdriver that's slipping out or a toaster that doesn't work. I mean, we call them names. I had a friend who had a car uh, who she had named Flattery. It wasn't a very good car, and it was named Flattery <laughs> because it would get you nowhere. Uh, and but she would like yell at Flattery. You know. She, <laughs> God damn it, flattery. And, but, so we do that, and, and I don't know exactly what we're thinking, but I don't think it's true that the, that the inanimate world is as flat to us as, as we like to pretend. I mean, Benji is pathologized, but he's pathologized for a relationship with the world that's not that different from ours. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think that's I think that's really true. You know, and and what you're saying about, um, you know, about cursing objects out when they, you know, when they displease us, mm-hmm. right, um, is one thing. But, you know, one of the things that was really interesting to me was when Marie Kondo came onto the scene and, and she starts, you know, advocating a, an entirely different kind of relationship with objects that, um, for example, you know, if you've had a pair of socks that have served you well and have developed holes as a result of your heels, you know, um, that, that instead of just throwing the socks out, you, you should hold them in your hands and, and, you know, feel a moment, you know, take the time to feel a moment of gratitude and then throw them out, you know? And so it's a, it's kind of a beautiful thing, you know? Um, but again, you know, it, and it really, I thought it was very interesting because, you know, that, that sensibility is very Japanese. Um, and so really, I think what Marie Kondo is doing is kind of teaching Japanese culture 101, um, you know, but in a, in a Western context, it seems, you know, it seems odd, perhaps, or, or strange. Well, could you say a little bit more about the cultural piece of this? Because, I mean, I've only been to Japan once, but I, I got, I think, a, a little bit of a sense of it. And I know less than I should about Buddhism, but we should say you're a, Buddha, you're a Buddhist priest in addition to everything else we're talking about. So to what degree does that 
connect to this notion that infuses your book, the book of form and emptiness, that, in fact, we're much more connected to unsentient things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, so Benny is, uh, you know, he's he's part Japanese, part Korean, mm. and then, you know, on his father's side, and then on his mother's side, he's, um, uh, you know, he's, he's Anglo. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, he has this connection to uh, Japan, his father, Kenji, um, you know, uh, grew up in Japan as well. Um, but there's also a, you know, a character in the book, um, who is, um, you know, sort of based loosely on the Marie Kondo um, type of figure. She's a Jap- she's a Japanese Zen nun right and um and she's written a book called tidy magic and um and you know she she did this in order to raise money to uh, you know save the dilapidated temple that she's inherited from her teacher um but you know the 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 book that she's written becomes a kind of international bestseller and and suddenly she's in this situation where um you know the the quiet temple life that she'd you know hoped for has suddenly been completely you know blown out of the water and it's impossible for her um but you know the 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 idea there i i you know i sort of wanted to you know sort of bring up the contrast between the way that objects are viewed in japan and then the way that they're you know the kind of um you know, disposability of objects in, um, you know, in, in our culture, you know, in our culture, obsolescence is, you know, is a, you know, it's designed into the object, right? It's, it's a feature, not a bug. Um, whereas, you know, in Japan, and especially traditionally, um, objects were really treasured, and they were passed, you know, on from generation to generation. And, um, you know, when an object broke, I mean, for example, like a, you know, a needle or a pin, you know, these were very precious things to women, you know, in, in when, you know, when they couldn't be mass produced, right? So, you know, you'd have a this precious needle that, that you'd saved, and, and then it would break, and instead of throwing it out, you would, you know, keep it until, you know, once a year, there'd be a ceremony at the local shrine or temple. And then you'd bring the broken needle to the temple and you would on the on the altar, there would be a block of tofu. Right. And so then you would insert your broken needle into the tofu so that um, your needle uh, could have a soft resting place. Hmm. And then and then there'd be a service, a ceremony, you know, sort of memorial and gratitude for all of the broken needles and and, you know, pins in the village. Um, and then they would be, you know, sort of thanked and sent off, you know, to the, to the afterlife. Um, and, and, you know, yes, it's elaborate and, uh, you know, time consuming, but it's also very there's something very beautiful about that. And I should also mention that, you know, there's a little bit of insurance in there, too, because needles and pins are sharp, even when they're broken, and they can hurt you if you don't respect them properly. So this, there's a little bit of insurance built into this ceremony as well. Right. Like so much, so many things in Japanese culture, it's the way that I understand it from my very amateur uh, stance, is there's is such an interesting tension there, too, because Japanese culture also has this kind of celebration and exploration of the idea of impermanence, uh, the, mm-hmm. kind of, the kind of wabi-sabi uh, uh, aesthetic, that idea that, because I think there are things here in the West that 
we we want to cover up impermanence, particularly the impermanence of us uh, and everything that we create. Uh, and and Japanese culture, although they m- might uh, attach quite a bit of sentiment to a, a needle that has you know a knitting needle or something that's outlived its usefulness, there's also this notion of all things pass, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, I think in this culture we tend to take impermanence very personally, right? right. And, and so then you mean me? <laughs> you mean me? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, fine for everybody else, but what me? Right. So just for people who maybe are blanking a little bit on the name Marie Kondo, uh, let's uh, remind – Marie Kondo, we should say, uh, as uh, is being suggested, there's a a character in this book who isn't Marie Kondo uh, but uh, who reminds us of Marie Kondo. Not only that but her book, uh, which we have to come to this part too, her book uh, decides that uh, it's going to jump into a shopping cart of somebody who needs it. But let's hear – this is B4, Kat. Uh, let's, Let's do that. Everything you need to know from folding techniques and storage solution to discovering what sparks joy for you. Get ready to experience the life-changing magic of Taidinna. So Benny's mother, Annabelle, really kind of needs this um, badly because, as we said, she, she can't throw anything out. But, you know, there's sort of a way in which Marie – we did a whole show about Marie Kondo. Uh, oh, and, uh, cool. Marie Kondo did not appear on that show, but like lots of other people did. Uh, so there's a way in which she is butting up a little bit, I think, against the idea – I mean, there's that whole idea, it doesn't spark joy and you get rid of it. But there's, there's also this kind of underlying question, do we owe anything to the inanimate objects in our lives? Do, do we have any other relationship to them other than this rather one-sided idea, well, you don't spark joy in me anymore, so out, out you go. Uh, I don't know. Do, do you have a different take on that? Um, you know, I think that that's where, um, you know, I, you know, I own so many objects that don't spark joy. So, you know, I'm probably not the one to ask. Um, and, and, you know, after I, I mean, I read Tidy Magic and after reading that, I kind of looked around and, and I just felt my heart sink. (laughs) And I just thought, seriously, I've got to get rid of like the stapler. The stapler does not spark joy, but I use it, you know, um, but it's, it's true. It's, it's a cheap plastic stapler. And if I, you know, if, if I could buy another stapler, I'd buy a metal stapler. Yes, that's what I'll do. Right. And then I, I stop myself and realize, no, I, I, I can't go. I can't go replace everything in my house, you know, with something that sparks joy. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it's I understand what she's talking about. Put it that way. I, I do understand, um, you know, the, the difference between, um, you know, picking up, uh, you know, picking up a cheap a ballpoint pen and sitting down and, you know, writing on, on, you know, sort of a scrap of cheap paper versus holding a really beautiful fountain pen and, you know, writing on like some beautiful piece of paper. Actually, I very often find it easier to write with the cheap ballpoint pen because it's not so precious, right? It doesn't spark joy, but it's precisely because I don't have the, you know, the expectation, you know, around it that I can kind of relax a little bit. So I don't know. I just think that, you know, that our relationship with things is very complicated. 
That's all I'm trying to say. And, you know, we have all sorts of different reactions to all of our different, you know, the things that surround us. Um, and I do think it's worth, you know, worth thinking about that. Um, and especially, I think it's worth thinking about um, objects that we, you know, that, that we buy lots of um, and, you know, that do have a kind of planned obsolescence built into them that we're going to simply have to throw away, you know, in a very short period of time um, and, and buy new things. Because, you know, it's, it seems that, you know, the climate crisis that we're facing now, you know, has something to do with this, right? So I think it's a, it's a conversation worth having with ourselves. Right. And at one point, uh, we haven't even mentioned the fact that the book, a book, is one of the big characters kind of uh, uh, in this book. And at one point, the book gives us all kind of a tongue lashing or a page lashing <laughs> or something like that, uh, whatever books lash at you with, uh, about exactly what you just described, you know, and says, and, and it kind of says, but, you know, a reckoning is coming. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's very much there. We're talking to Ruth Ozeki. Uh, her book is uh, a novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. I just have to say, this is just this kind of huge big sprawling it's like if dickens wrote a south american magical realism novel or something it's got really great colorful characters and this tremendous plot and 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 benny being kind of very much a a dickens kind of hero someone who's buffeted by fates that he cannot easily control um and and it's it's great fun and it's also very very absorbing and poignant uh we're going to take a little break here when i come back we're going to talk very specifically about the idea of hearing voices Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Hansel and Gretel are alive and well, and they're living Berlin. She is a cocktail waitress. He had a part in a fuss, Binderville. And they sit around at night. 
That's Laura Anderson, uh, the dream before. I think you're just going to have to read Ruth Ozeki's book, The Book of Form and Emptiness, to understand why that's part of our show today. Uh, but uh, we've tried to pick out some music that uh, th- that is very much uh, part of the fabric of the show, uh, of the book, rather. So, um, Ruth, I, I said sort of that Benny has these conjoined problems. One of them is the kind of animated nature of the supposedly inanimate world for him. And then the other problem is that that is taking the form of him very specifically hearing voices. Uh, and um, at the risk of turning into this people who, person who keeps saying, well, we did a show about this and we did a show about that, um, we, we did do a show about hearing voices. And, and I want to play, it's seven years old. I don't know where any of these people are anymore. Uh, this is a, a man named Peter Bullimore. Uh, he's a voice hearer. Um, he um, had was the founding member of something called the Paranoia Network in England. He holds a teaching and research post at Manchester University or did at the time and was a published author on issues of voices and trauma. So you're going to hear my voice talking to him, and then I'm going to have Ruth react to this. Go ahead. When you say voices, do is it? Um, I'm trying to just imagine the auditory experience of this. So, is it um, uh, voices that seem assignable to specific personalities? Is it just a cacophony of voices, each one kind of different from the other? Or? It's different for me. I hear three externally through my right ear, and now they're the, they were the people that abused me as a child. I hear the voice of my dead mother who's been dead for quite a long time now, and she makes very accurate accurate predictions within my life. Uh, And I hear another voice, which I think is my creative side, that got crushed through childhood experiences, and that voice was very helpful. It helped me write a children's book. But when the book got published, the voice disappeared. Hmm. Um, Other authors have had that experience too. I think Philip K. Dick uh, among them who heard a specific female voice for a lot. I think starting in his teenage years and going into his writing career, Philip K. Dick, who probably is the most per words written movie adapted author in the history of at least the English language anyway. But he – some of his creativity. And you hear this over and over again, whether it's him or Robert Schumann who was having a considerably less – uh, pleasant experience that that for creative people often they do hear voices. Yeah, I think so, and uh, I couldn't have wrote the book without the voice. So there you go. You were talking about yeah. this before, R- Ruth Ozeki. There's kind of a fine line between the possibly institutionalizable hearer of voices uh, mm-hmm. and the creative person who is channeling something. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you relate to that. Sure, sure. I, I, that was very, very interesting. One thing I thought was interesting was that he, uh, I'll be specific here, is that he heard it with his right ear. And, yeah. and that's where I heard my dad's voice as well. I, I definitely heard it with my right ear sort of behind me. Um, one of the things that I, you know, I realized as I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about writing this book and, and starting to research um, this experience of um, voice hearing, as well as, you know, not just voice hearing, but also, you know, this idea of un- shared experiences that an individual might have that can't be corroborated or verified by anyone else, right? And um, in other words, an extremely subjective um, experience. Um, you know, so I started thinking about, as I said before, the, the kind of range of experiences like this that we talk about. And certainly there are the artistic experiences, the voices of the characters that come to us, the music that musicians hear, you know, inside their heads, Um, you know, poets hear voices, um, you know, artists see visions. These are all unshared experiences, right? That, 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 um, that uh, uh, an attuned person can, can have, right? And then there are those voices, the, as, as um, the, the speaker just, 
talked about, um, the critical voices, the abusive voices, the voices that are trying to, you know, to shut down the creative side, perhaps, um, you know, who are always telling you that, that you're no good and that you should just stop, you know. Um, and then there are the, you know, and very often those voices, I mean, I certainly experience lots of those voices, but they're inside again. Um, but if you can imagine what it would feel like to hear those voices as if they were coming from the outside of you, as if they were, you know, as if you were hearing them with your ear, right? That would be a terrifying and, and potentially very, very disturbing um, you know, disturbing experience. Um, and, you know, so people who are disturbed by their voices, you know, might, for example, you know, go seek help and describe this to, uh, you know, to, to a psychiatrist, at which point, um, you know, in most cases, uh, that person would then be diagnosed, right? Um, diagnosed as either, um, you know, psychotic or schizoaffective or, you know, uh, schizophrenic. Um, and, and then very often, you know, there's a course of medication that's prescribed, you know, so it becomes a, a you know, a, a very kind of medical um, procedure at that point. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, so in any case, there's this kind of spectrum that I mentioned before, you know, on one hand, creative, um, somewhere in the middle, there's kind of neurotic. And then, you know, on, on the other side, um, you know, what's called psychotic, right? And, um, you know, the, the, there's so much critique now um, starting, which I think is really healthy, um, about this kind of diagnostic culture that we live in. Um, I'm thinking in particular about uh, a book that... Um, has re been receiving a lot of airplay now, The Body Keeps the Score by yes. Michael van der Kolk, yes. right? And it's a book about trauma and, and he is very, very critical of, you know, the current psychiatric, psychiatric diagnostic system and also the treatment systems. Um, and, you know, in response to this, there's a wonderful um, movement growing um, amongst people who hear voices and who think that the medicalized model, you know, the psychopharmaceutical model of treatment is not that effective, is not helping them. And I'm talking here about, um, there's an international group called the International Hearing Voices Movement. Um, their website, I think, is intervoice.org. Um, there's, uh, the, there's Hearing Voices USA. Um, you know, there, there are a, a lot of um, really wonderful sort of peer-based uh, support groups that yes. are out there investigating different ways of, um, you know, of coping with this. The point that you're um, making right now was actually, mm. I want to share another clip with you. And this is a woman named Lisa Forrestal, who actually is a trainer, or at least at the time of that show seven years ago, was a trainer for Hearing Voices Network USA. She's describing, I think, exactly the thing you're talking about, B2CAT. But I don't feel as though my voices are a creation of my experience or an extrapolation of my experience. They, they truly are separate souls that I hear and other people don't, just as you're a separate soul that everybody else is hearing along with me. Um, so, it, so it sounds almost like you're not really especially interested in some kind of clinical explanation of what this is all about. I, I'm actually rather, I get a little bit upset about that, yeah. actually. <laughs> it just feels like it gets in the way from us understanding our experiences. And you're not interested in changing or not having these voices, right? I have never once considered not having my voices and trying to be rid of them. So, Ruth, I, I, I love where she says it just feels like it gets in the way of us understanding our experiences to clinicalize it. She wants to 
to experience it the way we would experience maybe just about anything else in our lives. I love that. I think that's I think that's wonderful. And and so once again, you know, here, you know, we have to. I, I really believe that, you know, we have this idea of what's normal and what's not normal. Right. And, and our bandwidth for normal is really, really narrow, right? Norm, but normal is a cultural construct, right? It, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as normal. It's something that we made up. So if that's the case, why can't we widen it? You know, why can't we widen normal and make it more generous and more compassionate and more all-inclusive? Right. I, I think, you know, we've done it a little bit with so-called neurodiversity, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the idea that, that our, our neurological states represent a continuum or a spectrum, but maybe not so well with the sort of comparable psychological uh, stuff. Uh, you know, that I think we, we do a little bit differently and, and don't. But, yeah, I, I, I love – her idea anyway mm -hmm. that so and just to just to home in on what you were just saying too the thing about culture i mean i don't know it's a long time since i read eric erickson but doesn't he make that point that what is schizophrenia in one culture is a shaman in in, yes. in another yes. culture Exactly, exactly. It's celebrated in one culture and, and, you know, reviled or diagnosed away in another. And, and I should also say that, you know, um, <laughs> you know, we happen to live in a culture where people like me who hear voices and write them down, you know, and they turn into novels, which are not real, they're made up, right out of nothing out of my imagination, you know, in, in this culture, that's not only okay, it's actually celebrated. But I can imagine a culture where, you know, that somebody who does what I do every day would be looked at as, you know, as perverse, as, you know, as criminal, as mentally ill. And people who read novels would be, you know, novels, first of all, would be, you know, would be banned. And people who read them would have to do so secretly. I can also imagine that culture. And, it, you know, I, I feel like I'm very lucky to have ended up where I am, where, um, you know, I can do this. And uh, people seem to like it. <laughs> So Ruth Ozeki has just laid out for us her dystopian novel that she'll be writing in about like 10 years. Um, you heard it here first, though. Uh, all right. We're going to take a break. Obviously, Ruth and I have nothing to talk about. Uh, the show is going so fast. Uh, I'm, I'm really alarmed because there's so many things I, I want to get to. Uh, and we're, we won't get to all of them, but we'll try. We are back. It is time for me to say a thank you or two. First, to uh, Kat Pastor, uh, who's here in the studio with me, our technical producer. She's the one that I'm shouting out all these commands to, uh, and uh, she is impossible to uh, to fluster. Uh, and Lily Tyson is the person who decided we were going to do this show. She's the producer of this episode, uh, and she has done her usual thoughtful and immaculate job uh, of producing it and of putting up with me because occasionally I just get so excited about a show and like I have like 92 different ideas about stuff I wanted to, to want to do. 
<laughs> and unfortunately, that means telling Lily, no, I need this. you got to get me that. So she's been great about all that. And this is a terrific show. Uh, Ruth Ozeki, a wonderful guest, a novelist and filmmaker, also professor of English language and literature at Smith College. I'm not sure we've said any of that so far. Her new book is The Book of Form and Emptiness. Previous books include My Year of Meat uh, and A Tale for the Time Being, which is a finalist for the Booker Prize. And in some ways, I think, sets up some of the themes of, of this book as well. Um, so... Um, yeah, so I, I, our time is fleeting now, Ruth. But there's so one of the things that I demanded that Lily do, but I demanded it like 20 minutes ago, so it didn't it didn't happen. Was I suddenly thought about the song in Paint Your Wagon? I talk to the trees, but they never listen to me. I talk to the stars, but they never hear me. So that's a very romanticized idea of you know talking to nature, talking. And and I want to I want you to say a little bit more. Uh, about Zen Buddhism, uh, about uh, I mean, I read an article uh, about you trying to. I think you, you and some other people um, ordained some cherry trees. Do I have that right? As priests, uh, so maybe talk a little bit about sort of being you, Ruth, not uh, a character in, in the world, and 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 how that world and that kind of thinking informs your writing. Sure. You know, it's funny. I, I, I never know where Ruth begins, where Ruth ends and, and you know, the, a character yep. begins. You know, I feel like it's kind of a continuum here. Um, but yeah, no, I've been practicing Zen Buddhism now for uh, a, a long time. Um, you know, when I was a, I'm half Japanese, right? So the first, you know, the first memory I have as a, as a small person, a very small person, I think I was three, um, is of, you know, opening a bedroom door and, and peeking inside and seeing my grandfather on the, sitting on the floor, cross-legged meditating. Right. And I think I kind of imprinted on that, like a little duckling. I also think it terrified me, but you know, it, I sort of imprinted on that. And, you know, ever, you know, uh, really like all throughout my childhood and my, you know, teen years, I was just kind of fascinated by meditation and kept trying to do it in various different schools and ways and techniques. And, um, and then eventually came around to, uh, you know, or, or came back to um, Zen Buddhism um, when I met my current teacher, Norman Fisher, um, who's based in, uh, in the Bay Area. And um, he has a group called the Everyday Zen Foundation. And um, so that's the group that I'm affiliated with. And, um, you know, it, it's the, the type of Zen I practice is, you know, is uh, it's a, you know, it's Japanese Zen. And, and so it's very informed by, um, you know, sort of Japanese, indigenous Japanese customs and aesthetics. And, and certainly the, um, the, the reverence or the respect for nature is something that, you know, is just built into the tradition. Um, you know, there's a sense that, uh, you know, that, that everything can be our teacher, right? Trees can be our teacher, mountains can be our teacher, rivers can be our teacher, oceans, pebbles, roof tiles, you know, blades of grass, weeds, you know, they can all be our teacher if we let them, if we can, if we can, you know, become attuned to the things that they can teach us, right? And um, and so this is a, you know, this is a very, very, you know, sort of foundational deep sense um, that, that runs through, um, you know, Zen Buddhism. And I should also mention, not just be our teachers, but that, that we are, you know, 
intrinsically interconnected with all of the things in the world around us, right? That we cannot exist in isolation, right? Um, that, that simply is not possible, that we are simply a part of a much bigger whole. Um, and, and so as a result, you know, we learn from everything around us, you know, if, if we know how to listen. Um, and so, yes, this, um, this summer, uh, the city of Northampton um, decided that, I think they, they had money left over in their um, paving budget, and they decided to spend it on our street. Um, and it's a very small street, sort of tucked way out of the way. And um, decided that uh, as part of this, you know, these 10 um, beautiful old uh, Japanese cherry trees would have to be cut down. And I won't get into the, you know, I won't get into the long heartbreaking story of this. And it really was traumatizing and heartbreaking. Um, but in a, in a kind of last ditch effort to, um, you know, to, to sort of assert the rights of these trees to live, um, we ordained them as uh, Zen priests. Um, and it was a beautiful ceremony. You know, uh, we, we put robes on them and, you know, there were about, I don't know, 200 people there who had come to celebrate with us. And, um, and so it was a very, it was a very beautiful um, moment. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, it did not save the trees. Um, but uh, it was still, I think, an important, um, it was an important gesture, an important ritual to have done because, you know, I, I think it, it, you know, we're such an anthropocentric, such a human centric uh, culture. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's really helpful to think about, you know, other beings in the world as having, you know, rights like we do, you know, they're non-human persons and we, and we depend on them. You know, we can't live without trees, you know, so, so let's acknowledge that. And, the, yeah, you know, and do our best. That whole theme them. with trees has been running through my own life for the past year. I've been going through problems with two people very close to me having really severe medical crises. And I, I actually have developed, I would say, relationships with certain trees. Most of them are apple trees for some reason. But mm -hmm. apple apple trees are also very numinous, you know, and they, they yes. sort of they sort of die this like for years in front of you. Their farmers sometimes say that apple trees don't die, they just fall over at a certain point. Uh, <laughs> and and so yeah, no, I totally get that. I want to come go back to what you were saying before about sort of what teaches us uh, in, mm -hmm. in Zen Buddhism. I mean the I think the other thing that at least the way I understand it <laughs> is that questions teach us. You know, so many other Religions provide answers. I mean, the Old Testament is just one big list of answers. Mm -hmm. um, but my sense is that the koan uh, and the tradition itself is that idea that you ponder a question. And I think that also kind of funnels into some of what provided the driving force behind your novel. That's, that's such a that's such a great observation. Absolutely true. Yes, um, you know, so many of the um, Zen koans are actually set up as dialogues. You know, dialogues between two monks, two monastics, right? And they're asking each other questions and providing answers, and then they're disagreeing with each other and asking more questions. You know, and and so that that um, you know that that kind of paradigm of asking a question and then sitting with it, right? And and you know, really just sitting with the question and letting the question. Sort of deeply, you know, move into your body until an answer arises. I think is um, is certainly part of the practice, and it's and, and as I'm saying this, I'm I'm realizing that that is also the you know what I do when I when I write. You know, so much of my writing is not about giving answers; it's about asking questions. And it, you know, there's nothing like asking a question to um, you know to to stimulate or to you know sort of 
you know, spark the imagination, right? Um, and so I find myself doing that regularly as a, um, you know, as a, as a writing practice, as well as as a, you know, a spiritual or uh, Zen practice. So we are quite tragically almost out of time, but I do, do want to quickly ask you a little bit about teaching too. So that you, you and I are having a similar experience, although mine is much more limited, but we are both teaching at the place where we went to school as undergraduates. Uh, and, and you're teaching writing. And it's just, I'm just sort of wondering how transferable everything that you do and experience as a writer, which seems very, very specific to you, generalizable, generalizable to the human condition. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What, what's it like going into the classroom and trying to sort of give wisdom about this? Well, I, I don't really try to give wisdom at all. I, I try to elicit wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they the students have all the wisdom they need. They just need to learn learn that they have it and and learn how to listen to it. Again, it's a question of you know learning how to listen. Um, and so that's what I teach them. I you know I, I the first thing we do in class is we learn to sit quietly. You know and and so we do you know sort of contemplative exercises. Um, you know and you know I really think it's I you know. It, put it this way, you know, meditation and contemplative practice has been such an important part of my life. Um, I honestly think I would not be here now if I didn't, you know, if I hadn't learned these these techniques. Um, and I wish somebody had taught me early on. Um, and so that's where I start with them. You know, um, I, we, we do these, we do some contemplative practice. And then we do, you know, we sort of try to write from that place. Um, and, you know, but I also really believe that every writer has, you know, their own way of doing it. So what's important for me is to encourage students to experiment and find out what works for them. And then once they've done that, not to stay there just because it seems right, you know, that that you find something that works and then you, you kind of push against that too and see if something else might work and then something else might work. So there's a constant sense of, um, you know, of, of challenging themselves as well. Um, and, and that's, I mean, I don't know, that, that's, I taught myself how to write and, and that's how I did it. Um, and, you know, so I think it's almost like um, teaching them how to teach themselves mm-hmm. rather than imparting any set of rules or, you know, protocols. All right. I can tell you're a wonderful teacher. You're also a wonderful radio guest, but we have to stop, uh, which breaks my heart. There's so much more that we could go into. The novel is called The Book of Form and Emptiness. We didn't even get to tell you where the title comes from. I don't know. Tune in to Ruth Ozeki Part 2 on The Colin McEnroe Show, and we'll we'll do all the stuff we didn't get to do. We're going out with more Benny Goodman. Benny Goodman plays a big role also uh, in the background of this uh, amazing uh, piece of work. So, Ruth, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Colin. That was really fun. Okay. Uh, And bye-bye to the rest of you. Thanks to Kat. Thanks to Lily. We'll be back tomorrow.